Ezra and Haggai. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a dream as, uh, or a vision of what you felt like God was wanting you to be? Or what God was wanting you to do, and you began to pursue that dream, um, and you encountered uh, criticism, or opposition, or um, difficulty in pursuing that dream, and the dream kind of died. It just kind of went away. And you got discouraged. You got defeated. Well, that's where we're at in the book of Ezra this morning. Uh, As I mentioned last week, uh, there were about 50,000 Jews that uh, came out of exile. Uh, uh, Babylon had a new new king. Uh, Persia had taken over. And King Cyrus had made a decree after he became king that the Jews could begin to go back to Jerusalem and uh, rebuild the temple. And so about 50,000 went to rebuild the temple. And uh, Zerubbabel, he was the uh, governor or king of, uh, the, of Judah, of, of the Jews. He went with them as well as uh, Joshua or um, Joshua that we'll see his name in the book of Ezra. And uh, they all had a vision that they were going to rebuild the temple. And so it began. But then reality set in. Um, there was opposition. There was, it first began with criticism from within. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Ezra chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 10. says this, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites and the sons of Asaph were with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. There was one generation of Jews that were excited about the foundation of the temple having been laid. But there was an older generation of the Jews who had been there in Jerusalem prior to the fall of Jerusalem. And when they saw that foundation laid, the new foundation of the temple, they began to weep because it didn't compare to the old foundation. That had been there. Look at Haggai chapter 
2. I just want to read verses 2 and 3. Haggai says this. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So in the midst of this praising that was going on in the book of Ezra, at the foundation of the temple, some were overwhelmed, some were excited, and yet others were very disappointed, and they began to weep. And so there was this, there was this conflict within the people themselves. They weren't on the same page. Some were excited, some were disappointed. And so that was the first reality. Then the second reality is in Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, the enemies, the Jews' enemies on the outside, when they began, they they saw the Jews beginning to build the temple and they wanted to participate in participate. They ask for permission. And the leaders of the Jews uh, realized that, no, they were in it for all the wrong reasons and that they were going to sabotage their work. And uh, that, that literally happened. Look at verses 4 through 6. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. And uh, it went so far as to these enemies writing a letter to Artaxerxes back in uh, Persia, where they were back in Babylon. And Artaxerxes sent this letter uh, back to the Jews. Verse 23, chapter 4. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates. They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what started out with great enthusiasm and everyone on board uh, began to experience conflict within the Jews themselves and also from opposition outside. And the work of Jerusalem, the, the rebuilding of the temple, stopped for 10 years. Now, is this unusual Church, as we read through Scripture, as we've read through the Old Testament, when God gives a dream, when God gives a vision, there is going to be a furnace that that vision is going to go through where God's people are going to be tested and they are going to be purified. There is going to be a crisis of belief 
in anything that you set out on that God wants you to do. We see it over and over again. When God promised Abraham that he was going to be the father of a great nation, he didn't have any kids. And in fact, it took 25 years before Sarah gave birth to Isaac. In fact, it came to a point when it was impossible physically for Sarah to have given birth to a child. She was way beyond the childbearing years. But then at the moment, the time of impossibility, that's when God does the impossible. But God was taking Abraham and Sarah through a crisis of belief. King David. King David, when Saul was king, Samuel uh, came to Jesse, his household, because he was looking to anoint a new king because Saul wasn't living up to his calling. He wasn't representing Jehovah God well. And so God wanted to raise up a new king. And Samuel anointed David. Now that, that kingship didn't take place for 20 years. But over that 20-year process, David was running for his life because Saul was jealous of David and, uh, and David was on the run. Ultimately, David did become king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gave uh, David a vision that there was going to be a a king on the throne of David uh, forevermore, that his reign was going to rule for all eternity. But after giving David that vision, David made some poor mistakes. Bathsheba came along shortly thereafter. And you know the story of Bathsheba. But turmoil began to come to the surface in David's life to the, to the extent that his son Absalom was trying to kill David. And so here we see David on the run again for 15 years after God had given David that vision. But the vision ultimately becomes a reality. Look at the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt. God's telling Moses that I am going to be your leader and I'm going to take you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God does a miraculous thing in delivering the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And they're on their way. And guess what? They come to the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, and they're at a dead end, and the Egyptian army is on their heels. What are they going to do? God, have you brought us out here to die? We were better off in Egypt. A crisis of belief. And yet, what does God do? He parts the Red Sea, and the children of Israel are able to walk across on dry land. They're out in the wilderness and they're wandering and they have no water or food and they begin to complain and they want to go back to Egypt because they have it better there. And the vision, the dream of going to the land of of, um, milk and honey 
it begins to fade away and they don't believe God. And that generation has to die off and God raises up a new generation. Church, it happens over and over again. If God gives you a dream, God gives you a plan, just know that you are going to go through a crisis of belief. Because God wants to purify you. And God wants you and I and us to walk by faith and not by sight. We can't trust in ourselves. We've got to trust him that he is going to make it happen. And it happens, church, in churches today. God gives churches, God gives leaders visions, and then what happens? Obstacles come into play. Challenges, roadblocks. And if we're not trusting God, if we're not keeping our eyes on Him, it's easy to get discouraged and defeated and for the work to stop. I've seen this in my in my daughter's life. My Allison, she loves to sing. You've heard Allison sing. I mean, when she sings, I mean, the stars come down. But you know what? She's got three kids now. And a a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. When Allison was in our home, she sang all the time. There was a song in her heart. We would go to a restaurant. She would want to go to the women's room. When she was about three or four years old, she would go to the ladies' room and there would be, the restrooms would be tile floor, tile walls. And she would go in there and she would sing at the top of her lungs. And those in the restaurant would be listening to Allison on the outside. They'd be laughing and she'd come out and they'd be all smiling and laughing at her. And she had no clue that she was being heard from inside the restroom. But you know, when she had children, that song just kind of left her heart. Why? Well, because life can do that, especially if you're raising a two-year-old and one-year-old at the same time. I believe that voice is going to come back, but she's just in a unique, difficult period of her life being a mom. Folks, That happens in life. Life has a way of sucking the dreams and the visions that have existed in our hearts. Turn to Haggai, chapter 2. Here the people have been discouraged. Haggai, Zechariah that we looked at last week, they've come on the scene now. It's 10 years later after the work has stopped. Zerubbabel is still the governor, the king. Joshua is still the high priest. They're still leading, okay? But leading something that has come to a halt for 10 years. And this is what Haggai says in verse 4, chapter 2. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work 
For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God raises up the prophet Haggai and says, Folks, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your enemies. God is still in our midst, and we need to roll up our sleeves and get to work and trust him. God is going to complete the task among us. That brings me to our church today. I want to compare what happened in Judah with what's happening in Emmanuel Baptist Church today. I've got some I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. The bad news is this. Church we are in decline. I uh met with those who uh I invited the church to come to a ministry lifter uh the end of August. And uh I was I was aware of these numbers but uh I was I was afraid to face these numbers, and I was afraid, I was humiliated to share these numbers with those who were in that Saturday morning ministry lifter. And I just want you to bring up that graph. Do we have it up there? This is, this is um, our church's attendance over the last 11 years. 11 years ago, before we built, bought, purchased this building, we were running a little over 600 people in, uh, in our services on Sunday morning. And then, um, so from 2002 through 2011, we've gone from 600 to 300 people. That's scary. And, uh, you know, I just want to share a few things that have transpired over these last um, 11 years. Uh, One, you know, when we were running 600 people, we made a philosophical change. One of the things that we decided that we were going to be as a church is we were going to be more loving and conscientious of people on the outside who didn't come to our church. And we began Harvest Festival. And there were some people who disagreed with Harvest Festival and uh, felt like we were becoming too evangelistic at that point. We did something like uh, be the church. We had one, one person come up and say, this church is, is too evangelistic for me. And they went elsewhere. But we conscientiously made a philosophical change and introduced a Harvest Festival. Um, we went through a leadership transition. Pastor Payton was the pastor at, at that time, and I became the pastor. Uh, at that time, we also chose to birth the Child Development Center. Some people disagreed with the Child Development Center, that we were uh, no longer family-friendly and that we were encouraging mothers to work outside the home. 
people disagreed with that. We made uh, pastoral additions and subtractions along the way. And every time we would make a subtraction, there was some consequences that were associated with that decision. We changed our worship styles. Back when we were uh, running 600 people, um, we went uh, from two services on Sunday morning to three services, and we began a Saturday night service. Uh, When we were running two services on Sunday morning, both services were identical, the same style, the same song service in both services. But we introduced uh, a contemporary service on Saturday night. And for many people, they felt like we had gone from one church to three churches in ways. They had their each their own personality. Uh, we tweaked the worship schedules. And we changed worship locations. We've made some major decisions over these last 11 years. And what began with enthusiasm and optimism about the future began to gravitate into exhaustion and complacency and disgruntled hearts. And we've kind of become a church like I want you to see in this video right now. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. You know, in many ways, that describes us. We've become self-centered and self-focused, and it's all about me. Now, as I've showed you the, the graph Who's to blame and where we are today? Right here. The buck stops with me. You know, as we've been as we've been making these changes, I've just assumed that you understand what understood what these changes are all about and that you would just come along. And it's been over the course of 11 years. And I have not stopped or allowed us to stop as a church 
and allowed God to develop a compelling vision among us that we can all see and that we all buy into and that when we do make changes, it all makes sense because you know where we're going. And we've agreed on the process to begin with. All the changes that we've made have been made by a small group of people. It's been through the church staff. It's been through opinion leaders of our church. It's been through deacons. But we've never allowed a process where the church as a whole can come and we can dream together and decide what are our values going to be. This is who we are going to be as a church. And then based on those values that we develop a vision on how we're going to accomplish those values. As a church, we need to determine what's most important. Let me give you a hypothetical situation. Suppose I had a dream that... uh, that I wanted Emmanuel Baptist Church to catch the record rainbow trout in California. And I see this vision of this of us catching this trout, and we're going to take this trout, and we're going to have it mounted uh, on Jack's Restaurant's wall in Bishop. You ever been to Jack's Restaurant in Bishop? On the walls in that restaurant, they have all the record trouts, different kinds of trout, the person who caught it, and the date. Well, I have this dream that uh, together we're going to catch this rainbow trout. It's going to be mounted on a wall. It's going to have Emmanuel Baptist Church's name and the date that it was caught. Now, I could have this dream, but you know what? If you don't like fishing, chances are you're not going to go fishing. And for us to catch this trout, we're all going to have to value fishing. All right? But fishing just doesn't happen to be one of the values of this church. Well, we need to determine what our values are going to be at a manual. You know, when we had that ministry lifter at the end of August, there were four things that came to the surface uh, at that meeting. Uh, We asked the question, what what do you see, what do you believe God wants us to be as a church five years from now? The first thing, the first priority was that we needed to focus on youth ministry. We needed to find a youth pastor. We needed to build our youth ministry. The second thing was a dynamic men's ministry. We need to have a men's ministry that is attractive to men, that's encouraging men to be godly husbands and fathers and leaders in our church. We need a dynamic men's ministry. Third was a 20-something ministry. We need to reach the 20-something age group of Ridgecrest because we don't have many of them in our church. 
And then the fourth, there needed to be a greater relationship between the generations. Uh, the senior adults need to, to know and be able to interact with uh, the youth and the 20-something, the younger families, that there's this disconnect in our church right now. And, uh, and so that was very helpful. Well, and we're going to focus on those down the road. And we're going to focus on those through a strategic leadership team. We need to put together a team, church, of people across Emmanuel Baptist Church who can come together and dream together and determine first, what are we going to value? What is most important? If we're going to value reaching the 20-something generation, well, that's going to drive what we do, how we're going to do it. Because going back to the fishing value, if we decide we were all going to buy into uh, catching this record trout, well, we would have to go about learning how to catch this trout. You know, what is the mannerisms of this species? What's the best time of the year to go after this trout? What do uh, big trout like to eat? And we just need to understand the habitat of the trout. And then we also need to determine, well, how are we going to go about catching this trout? What are the things that we're going to need? Oh, we're going to need a fishing pole. We're going to need uh, big lures. Uh, we're going to need a boat. Uh, we're going to need a net. We're going to need dynamite. Well, that's the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? <laughs> but we're, we have to list out these things. These are the things that we're going to need in order to catch this trout. And then we need to prioritize that list. What do we need first? What do we need second, third? But as we dream and as we make out this list and as we prioritize, guess what? We all understand what's necessary to catch the trout and what it takes to get there because we see the big picture. Well, whatever we choose to value as a church in either reaching youth or the 20-somethings or young families... It's something that we all need to value. And I've assumed that you valued the things that I valued. If you don't value those things, then guess what? It's very easy to find something else that interests us and go elsewhere. Does that make sense? And so we need to pause. And we need to ask God, God, what would you have us do as a church? Because we've made a lot of decisions. But in your eyes, they've been haphazard. They've, they've come across as haphazard, uh, frustrating, and too frequent. And we've been making decisions based on symptoms. Well, this is the problem, and so this is what we need to do. 
And we've been reactive. We've got to stop being reactive. And we need to start being proactive. And we need to pause and we need to decide as a church, this is what we value most. And then begin to paint the vision, well, this is what we need to do to accomplish, to, to achieve that value, that, that, that goal. And prioritize. And then make decisions based on those priorities. Can things be different? Absolutely. Are things going to be different? Absolutely. But church, it's going to require God to be working among us. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I have made with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Look at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. One book over. Zechariah 4, 6 says this. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How are we going to accomplish the dream? How are we going to begin to grow again and and truly reach the next generation? Church, it needs to be bathed and it needs to be birthed in prayer. We need to be a praying people. I want to encourage you that in your Sunday school classes, that you spend some time in that class praying for our church and that we begin to dream God's dream for this church and that God unite us together and that God creates among us a compelling vision that's going to keep us together and that's going to trust him, unite our hearts with him. Over this last weekend, we were looking at our men's ministry and, uh, dreaming about what our men's ministry needs to be like. And we just paused on Friday night. And it was decided, at first we need to pray. We need to be men of prayer, bringing our men's ministry before the throne and asking God to revive our hearts and give us his thoughts, his desires as men of this church. And so we've decided that we're going to come together on Monday mornings at 5.30. We're doing it at 5.30 because we're trying to do it before guys go to work. Some of you need to be there at 5.30 at work and you can't make it. Others have to be there at 6 or 6.30. And so that gives you a half hour or an hour. But we're going to come and meet here in this chapel at 5.30. And we're going to begin to pray that God began to move in the hearts of men. And that God gives us a compelling vision 
that we all have buy-in with. It's not going to be decided by a little hand group of, a handful of people. It's going to be decided among us as a church. Why do we need to do this together? Church, we need to be united. We all need to value the same things. Because when we value the same things, when hardship comes, when obstacles come, we know that God is in control of this ship. And God is going to see us through. And God is going to do it among us. It's not us. It's going to be God. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the second reason why we need to do this, church, is because this community is desperately in need of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this. The hope of Ridgecrest is the church. Now you might say, well, no, pastor, the hope of Ridgecrest is Jesus. And yes, you're right. But the body of Christ, the church, is the manifestation, is the physical presence of Jesus in the community of Ridgecrest. And God needs strong churches in this community. I've been appalled at the stories that I've been hearing in our community. There are workplaces in Ridgecrest that sound like Peyton Place. Now, I've never seen Peyton Place. Peyton Place was before my time, okay? But for some of you, know what Peyton Place is. And Peyton Place is in the work environment. I've listened to married couples who've been acting out in adulterous situations, and they've taken their children along. And one of the spouses will be in the bedroom with their boyfriend while their children are out in the living room watching cartoons, watching television, and it's being paraded before their eyes. We read in the paper this week, didn't we, about something that's happening in one of our schools and the sexual dysfunction and the confusion and it's being paraded in, our, in the children in that school right in front of them. Church, this community needs Jesus. And it's the church that's... It's the church alone that's going to lift up Christ. He is their only hope. The church needs to be strong. We need many churches that are strong, and this church needs to be one of them. Yet for this church to be strong, we need to have a compelling vision. That's bathed in prayer. And we all agree this is what God wants us to do. And so I want to encourage you to pray. Pray in your Sunday school class. Pray um, uh, in your home groups. Uh, Men, come together on Monday mornings at 530 and pray. You can come on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock if you're not involved in the class. You can go to our prayer room. But we need to pray. And seek God's faith and say, ask God, God, what do you want us to do together?
We're not going to accomplish this overnight. I anticipate this taking at least 18 months. It's going to be a long process. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities for communication both ways. It's just not going to be one way. And I'm saying this is what we're going to do. No, it's going to be two-way conversation. We're going to be praying and we're going to be dreaming together and we're going to decide together this is what we value most. And one of the things, church, that's not going to go away as long as I'm pastor here is one of those values that's at the right, right at the top is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. Jesus died for our sin. And our only way to the Father is through the Son, Jesus. So I'm asking you, are you willing to join the team? If you would like to be part of the strategic leadership team, I want you to indicate on that that card. Now, I don't know what the time commitment is yet, and I don't know... um, Uh, when we're going to start our first meeting, those things haven't been decided yet. But if you're willing to serve on this team, let me know on that connection card. And the second thing is, are you willing to pray? Are you willing to pray asking God to move in your heart, in my heart, in the life of our church? That graph looks bad. But there's always a crisis of belief. And I want you to know, church, God is with us. His name is Emmanuel. Would you join me in believing God for what he wants to do among us? Let's pray. Father, I know that our our situation isn't unique. There are a lot of struggles going on in churches today. Father, we have responsibility for this church, your church. God, we want your heart. We want to be, we want to do what you want us to do. Unite our hearts together, Lord Jesus. Give us a compelling vision that will unite us under the banner in the name of Jesus. God, when families walk through this door, marriages are in crisis, children are out of control, individuals are caught up in addictive behavior, lives are shipwrecked. 
God, may they know that there's hope here. Because Jesus is here. God, do it. I can't. No individual can. It's going to take the Spirit of God. So, Father, be glorified among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.